News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, it's going to be a busy morning chatting with Raji Silva. We have so much to talk about. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Hey, Simi, this story that I'm about to share with you made me actually think again, slow down and think. When was the last time you stopped somewhere and just sat down with zero intention whatsoever and just were? Hmm. When did you like sit on a bench or lie on the grass and just sit and ponder? Well, I love to people watch. So this is not that unusual for me. So like I love doing that like on a vacation, just like sitting and watching people go by and having a moment. Oh, that's not what I'm talking about. I know. I'm trying to think now. When was la- I, I don't think I've done exactly that. I know that I have moments where like if I'm reading a book and the house is quiet and everything is clean, I do put my book down and I kind of look around and I think, wow, oh, I, I love, love this moment. Like I love this moment. This is great. I do have moments like that. I love that. Well, you know what I do instead when I have a spare moment? I do not connect to my breath or stare <laughs> at the clouds. I pick up my phone. And I'll use, like, even if it's a couple of seconds, I will use it to text. I'll check Twitter for the latest news. I'll see what friends are up to in their lives on Instagram or TikTok. And the story that I'm looking at today, uh, it was just an important reminder to me of what I need to get back into in my life, which is taking that moment. There's this art center on the North Shore. It's called the K-Meek Art Center. It's in West Van. And they've just revamped their outdoor courtyard with a sculpture that's got two complementary pieces to it. And they're made out of beautiful white marble from Italy. It's like a smooth rounded shape, no straight lines anywhere. And it's actually a bench. And this artwork slash bench is called Sit With Me, Share With Me. And it was made in honor of the late Vancouver philanthropist Yolanda Ferris, who's uh, given greatly, contributed greatly to uh, Vancouver arts. And Both the artist and the philanthropist are Lebanese. So the sculpture incorporates the letter Y in Arabic for the late Yolanda, but you can't, you can't really tell unless you had like an aerial view of the bench. And, you know, being marble, it doesn't stain, it's eternal, it doesn't require maintenance. And the artist, uh, who's involved in making it, Marie Curie, she evoked her Middle Eastern roots and like called upon the the letter uh, Y for Yulanda and in Arabic and and she doesn't see the world as black and white despite having you know lived in countries where things have seemed black and white war torn places and she says people everywhere have the same needs the same fears the same hopes and she tries to encapsulate all of that in just this bench that she sculpted here's Marie Curie. You know, it never ceases to have wars and tumultuous situations. And yet at the same time, um, as I was creating these kind of works, I realized that it applies also in civilized countries in the sense that today we are so busy and, um, you know, related to our screens and things that nobody has the time to sit and, and talk and reach out to others in the way we did, you know, in the past. And not only do we not reach out to others, instead we're reaching for our phones. And I feel like it's been a very long time since I have just sat somewhere pretty, somewhere beautiful, and not just looked up at the sky, but also like engaged with a stranger in conversation, you know? Right. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that. I always think about that during cherry blossom season, right? Mm. Where people get so busy taking pictures of these beautiful cherry blossoms (laughs) that you don't ever just stop and admire them and just think about how beautiful they are, right? We're just obsessed with taking pictures of stuff. 
Yeah, and in a lot of cities, especially in Europe, uh, the sculptures and the landscape architecture, it lends itself to conversation. Like there are courtyards where you're meant to sit with other people and turn to conversation. So this kind of thing is kind of neat to me because I don't see a lot of that in Vancouver. And the uh, generous donation was made by Rima Ferris to, to lead to this sculpture. And her late mom, Yolanda, she made a significant culture, cultural contribution to Vancouver during her lifetime. She um, made a huge donation to the National Art Center in Ottawa. She uh, Her funds also led to Vancouver Opera, instituting a new program to help young professionals in the opera world. And here is uh, Rima Ferris, Yolanda's daughter, uh, talking about how special this bench is to her. So you can walk around them. You can be enveloped by them. So it feels kind of like a hug. And then the invitation is there. The The marble itself seems to invite you to reach out and to, to be able to sit, to hold in conversation and be in each other's company. And I think that it achieves all those things in sort of a, almost a miraculous way. I wanted a place that people could sit in and reflect and just connect to memories, uh, to, to connect to just what it means to be alive and what it means after we pass on. And Simi, we do this a lot in nature, I feel, but not so much in an urban setting. And we're not really encouraged to when the landscape architecture or like there's no public installations like this that, that invite you to just sit somewhere pretty and relax for a moment, you know? Yeah, I know. I was just thinking though, how many people do that. I was thinking even of this bench, people will be taking pictures of it. How many of them will actually <laughs> stop and do what they're supposed to do? You are totally right. And it's the most Instagrammable bench exactly you know beautiful white marble (laughs) i can already picture the influencers leaning back on it um it's true yeah a lot of people will seek out spots that that will photograph well these days rather than just sitting there and actually doing what was intended which is just to take a moment for reflection oh the irony this piece made me think about a lot of things have you ever thought about doing like a social media detox or something like that yeah i have and i do so very apprehensive just then (laughs) It's hard for me. I'm not going to lie. It's absolutely hard for me to get off of Instagram and to get off of Twitter. I'm a news hound. And so I don't just want my news. I want to know what everyone else is saying about it. And people say that, that as an environment, Twitter is kind of toxic. I don't disagree. But I'll tell you that there is an addictive property to it. And so it is really hard for me to get off of it. But I do. And I can tell you without a doubt that I feel 100% better when I'm not engaged with Instagram and Twitter and Facebook all the time. I'm not on TikTok that much, but that's because I think that it's that much more addictive. So I'm just like trying to be responsible with my time and stay (laughs) off of it. Okay. So people want to see this bench, perhaps sit on it, have a moment of reflection. Where can they find it again? Yeah, it's at the K Meek Art Center in West Van. It's right by the uh, elementary school there, the West Van Elementary School. And um, it's in their courtyard. It's public, uh, which is lovely because we don't have enough of these outside and, and just inviting anyone to sit down and enjoy themselves. All right. Well, I hope they do that. Thank you for that, Raji. Thanks, Sim. This is uh, uh, for Simi Sarah Show, Re Dog Poop. I am completely fed up with people not picking up after their dogs, but what makes me even angrier is people that pick it up in the bags and hang it in trees or throw it into the bush. Anyway, that's my beef. Thank you. Who does that? 
Who does that? I can't believe you see that in your neighborhood. I'd be driven crazy by that too if I were you. Thank you very much for the call to our buzz line. Keep them coming, 604-331-2899. So why are we talking about dog poop? Well, our Raji Sohal is back with us for more on this. It's all because of what they're doing and what they have done in Tel Aviv. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, they've already made it law. A municipal bylaw has passed in Tel Aviv after an estimated 500 kilograms of dog mess was left at the roadside every month No, in Tel Aviv. No. That's a lot of dogs. I can't even imagine. Well, it's one in 11 people there who are dog owners, which is extremely high. And they are, what they're doing is taking swabs of poop samples that they find on the street, in the parks, on the sidewalks, and they're testing them for DNA, cross-referencing it with the actual owners. Okay. I kind of love this program. I do. That's great. Left to their own devices, citizens are not cleaning up after themselves. They're not. And what happens is people see others dropping dog poop on the or leaving it, you know, or doing as our listener said, popping it in a bag and then dropping the bag somewhere. And um, people see others doing that and they have one of two reactions, in my opinion. One is they shame them. They say that's disgusting. And the other is they go, oh, I guess that alleviates me of the responsibility of cleaning up after my dog, too. Exactly. If they're not doing it, why should I do it? I know. It drives me crazy. It happens in my neighborhood. There's a lot of dogs, especially during the pandemic, right? A lot of people increase dog ownership. And every once in a while, I do see this. And there are signs up. Various homes in our neighborhood have put signs up, right, on the little grassy verge there between the sidewalk and the street where people are saying, pick up after your dog. And I think, is that is it really that bad? Yes, it is. People don't do this. And I don't understand why. Mm-hmm. In France a while ago, you may remember people were putting little French flags on toothpicks into the dog poop. Um, also, they were doing signs of, I, can I swear in French? I don't think so. No, I don't think you can. Um, but they, <laughs> I would have loved to have putting, heard it, but no, you yeah, can't. Yeah, they were putting the French word for dog poop uh, on little flags and putting that into the dog poop as well. My neighborhood is filled with these cutesy signs trying to convince dog owners to grow up and clean up after their dogs. But I don't think we can leave it on dog owners to clean up after their dogs because it's not happening. So a system like this, I think, makes sense. But there's potential problems, right? Like public shaming, although we have seen from psychology studies that it does work, that retribution model as a solution for salt, like solving a lot of people's behavior isn't necessarily all that positive overall. I feel like... Well, it it works. I was just going to say, but though, if you pick up after your dog, then this is not a problem for you. Oh, yeah. Well, there is that. That's all you have to do. And also, I think the threat of doing this means that, you know, yeah, start picking up after your dog. Yes. So you have a dog. So tell me if you do this. Yeah, you have two dogs. Tell me if you do this. I see dog owners, when they are picking up their dog poop, diligently, responsibly, they'll make such a performance of it. (laughs) they'll do the whole thing really slowly and they'll like look over their shoulder and look across the street and make sure that somebody is witnessing that they are picking up the poop 
They will even make eye contact with non-dog owners. I have not done that because most of the time I'm grumbling about (laughs) talking to my dogs, being like, I see, do you see me doing this for you? Do you see, like, look at, I can't believe I am doing this for you right now. So usually that's, that's where my head is at, right? Like, look at, this is what I've been reduced to picking up after the dogs. Cause don't get me started on the whole family situation with the dogs, but yeah, we'll see if people like this idea. Raji, thank you. Thanks. It is a beautiful and popular public park. It is often referred to as the city's crown jewel. And yet, it seems unreal, but the public is actually being warned to use Stanley Park at their own risk after a string of coyote attacks. The latest incident, as you've been hearing about in the news, involving a two-year-old girl. Well, conservation officers are now ramping up efforts to track down these coyotes. And for more on that, we're joined by Amit Ganda, who's Director of Parks for the City of Vancouver. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So how many attacks have we actually had? I believe since December of 2020, we've had uh, 31 reported coyote incidents in the park. Well, that seems like a lot. Has something like this ever happened before? You know, I I can't really say for sure yes or no, um, but we are definitely seeing um, an increased amount in comparison from previous years. And do we know why? Have you taken a look at perhaps why that's happening? I mean, that's part of what, you know, Conservation Office Services is really looking into. I mean, the continuing efforts to address this and reduce the conflicts in the park. Um, There's efforts with us and other area organizations and municipalities and wildlife biologists that are actually considering this and looking into this um, to see how we can address it and reduce the conflicts in the park moving forward. Okay, so do you think, like, with this latest incident that involving the two-year-old girl, was this, I mean, just like the straw that broke the camel's back and now it's like something has to be done here? Not necessarily. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, obviously nobody wants to see anyone injured by a coyote, especially a child, and we're, we're very thankful that she's, she is recovering. Um, but, you know, the, the uh, CEO has been spending, you know, I think they spent almost 100 hours already uh, previous patrolling the park. Uh, our park rangers are constantly in the park as well. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of attention to this. Um, and so it wasn't, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a straw that broke the back, but it's something that, of course, nobody wants to see. And we obviously want to come up with a solution moving forward. Yeah, can you give us an idea then what have the conservation officers been doing? What does this search involve? So they, they've been, you know, they've been continuing to, to of course, respond and, and have patrols in the park. Um, so these ongoing efforts to locate, and I think there was two of the coyotes that were euthanized um, already. But, um, you know, there's, in the several cases, the park areas starting trails were immediately closed as well. So we've had some signage in the park, but there's an extensive signage um, strategy that will make sure that there's more of it in the park. Um, you know, CO, I think they've kind of warned the public to consider alternative locations in Stanley Park and to use abundant of caution. Um, you know, it's just another reminder. I mean, Stanley Park is, is, is a forest, um, you know, and so when we're there, I mean, just in general, you know, we always have to be aware of our surroundings as well. That's not to say that this is preventable by being aware all the time, but it's something that we just have to be, you know, it is a forest. It has natural spaces. Um, of course, we don't want to see coyote attacks moving forward. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of, you know, lean on, you know, CEO for some advice and, and see what next steps we can take and work in collaboration and come up with some solutions. Right. So are they going to be like ramping up patrols, putting more hours in, essentially working harder to try to find these coyotes? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, they're patrolling the park, um, you know, already, and they're in there today as well, and they'll continue to have a presence in the park um, to, to ensure um, public safety. Um, so 
this is going to be ongoing work and, and the collaboration with the various organizations to, to obviously come up with a solution um, that's viable. Do we know, like, number-wise, how many coyotes we might be talking about here? No, I mean, I, I, I'd love to be able to give you a total number of honey coyotes. Of course, there's, I mean, there's lots, I, I think. Uh, I don't know how many. We haven't been given specific numbers of exactly the numbers, and I think that'll be part of the information that'll come back to us. Um, on, on what that looks like. Um, but no, I don't have a number of how many coyotes are in the park. Right. So how long do you expect this process to take then, I mean, where you're kind of investigating and waiting for that information to come back? Again, I'm, we're going to have to lean on, on conservation officers to give us that data. Um, so I, I don't want to put out a timeline on what that is because it's, it's work that they're, they're, you know, obviously dedicating their resources to, to provide. So um, it's something that we'd, we'd have to get some feedback from them on what that looks like. So then in the meantime, what do you want people to know? Uh, you know, like there is ongoing work. I mean, this is, you know, we recognize and understand the public is very concerned of these incidents. Um, you know, we're also very concerned about this. Um, you know, I mean, the park is open. Um, we do, again, use abundance of caution when you're in the park. Um, try to be there, you know, and, and understand the surroundings. But, um, you know, be safe. Um, understand that this ongoing uh, work is happening in the park. Um, but the park is open. Uh, but, uh, you know, right. <laughs> it is, it is, it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, you know, we don't want to put, uh, fear in, in, into people, of, of course, about going into the park, but, you know, it is really about just understanding your surroundings, uh, time of days, perhaps, you know, um, but, uh, but, uh, an active park is, is a good place. And I think that also helps with uh, mitigating some of the risks. So an empty park doesn't so much help, you know, is, in this situation. Is, so is there a time of day here that is of a bigger concern than others? I mean, is it evenings? Is it early mornings? Is there a certain area that is of more concern? Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily. I mean, it's, you know, of course, good lighting. It also helps uh, people. So, you know, you know, as we can, you know, as we can see better, I think it's a little bit, um, we understand the situation a little better when it's dark. Um, of course, it's hard to see anything as, as people. So, Day of light is, is always best to be in there during daytimes. So, you know, being in there late at night uh, in darkness, I don't think is is really um, a good idea in general in any park. But uh, but day of light is, is always a good good option. Okay, so early morning and evenings, perhaps twilight. That's the time to be more on your guard. Yeah, I, I think you should always be mindful of where you are, regardless. But yes. All right. Well, hopefully, we'll get an update on this. Thank you very much, Amit. No problem. Thank you so much. That's Amit Ganda, Director of Parks for the City of Vancouver, talking about the measures that they are taking. It sounds like they still have a lot of work to do in terms of figuring out this coyote problem. They've tracked down and euthanized two coyotes, I think he said, but the the attacks or the you know the interactions still continue two year old girl uh, the latest victim to be recovering from this and so yeah i think it does scare people from going to the park you may have seen this story happening yesterday afternoon where some advocacy groups were distributing a safe supply of heroin cocaine methamphetamines right outside the Vancouver Police Department at uh, Hastings and Cordova there at Maine and Cordova i should say to protest the proposed Vancouver model of drug decriminalization and the lack of a more widely available safe supply right now. The Vancouver model is supposed to be moving us towards a safe supply, but many advocates don't like the amounts that are going to be used in that Vancouver model. Uh, some of the other people who were there was Vancouver City Councilor Jean Swanson. She was among those handing out the free supply. And also the Drug Users Liberation Front and Jeremy Calicum joins us now, one of the organizers with them. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Simi. It's so great tell, to be here. Okay, thanks for joining us. Where where did all these drugs come from? Um, well, the Drug User Liberation Front sources all of its substances off of the dark web, um, which is basically a you know kind of covert internet where you can um, you know buy drugs in kind of like a way that's like you know Amazon. People can buy stuff and leave reviews, so it kind of introduces another level of regulation into right. Um, but that Jeremy, how do you know if that was safe supply? Uh, we get it tested at uh, Get Your Drugs Tested, uh, which uses FTIR spectrometry to test the drugs. And it certainly isn't, like, the best way to test, but it's, you know, the only resource we really have. Okay, so what was it like handing these drugs out yesterday? What was the reaction like? Well, it was our third time doing this. Um, and, you know, this time it was a bit more bold because we did it in front of the Vancouver Police Department. But um, it was... It was exhilarating and it was, um, it felt really good. It felt like, you know, community was coming together and really, really making a stand for what it knows will, will save lives. And to have Councillor Swanson there in, you know, solidarity and partnership, it was, um, you know, it, it, you could feel the electricity in the air. It was so great. What, what were you hoping would be achieved by doing something like this? Um, well, one is to really keep driving home the, the, proof of concept that safe supply can be done, needs to be done, and it can be done very simply. Um, and also to, you know, raise awareness of this Vancouver model and um, that there, there are no provisions for safe supply in, in the model. It's, it's just decriminalization and decriminalization without safe supply won't reduce overdose deaths, which is the whole kind of point behind the model. And there are also two other points um, that you know, drug users weren't included in, in making this policy for the people who are being affected, and it was essentially driven by police. Aren't we moving towards this, though? Like, I feel like this is a very big step for us to take as a society, but we are going to get there, aren't we, Jeremy? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. We, it definitely is in the right direction, but with six people dying every day, um, you know, like half measures aren't really going to cut it. So you think we need to do something very drastic? I would, I mean, I wouldn't even call safe supply drastic. I, that's what's so perplexing to me is that, you know, safe supply seems like a common sense harm reduction principle that, you know, people on both sides of the kind of, you know, substance use spectrum, either people in recovery or people who are using, can both agree on that. Like, we don't want people to die. And, you know, in, until people, like, voluntarily want to go to recovery, like, there needs to be, they shouldn't be risking their lives. So by doing this right outside the police station, though, what were you hoping would happen? Uh, well, we were. Th- this event was a bit different than the ones in the past in that it was specifically targeted at the Vancouver model. And um, it, it's really just to raise awareness. It was um, like, it, it was a, it, it's a stunt. Um, you know, like it didn't have to be in front of the police station, but it was symbolic, I guess. So will there be other events? Until we have safe supply, I mean, we, we can't morally, we, we couldn't stomach stopping. It's, it's something we fiercely believe in, and we're really willing to put ourselves at tremendous risk to, to push it forward. I mean, there's no, there's, no, there's no real protections for us other than, you know, like we, we're willing to you know, see, see where this goes and, and push things forward. So, no, we won't stop. All right. Well, we'll see what the health minister has to say about it. We're going to be talking to him coming up. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you.
Well, lots for us to talk about this morning with Health Minister Adrian Dix, starting with, of course, changes to BC emergency health services that were announced yesterday after concerns about ambulance wait times and, of course, the response to the historic heat wave. So for more on that, we're joined now by Adrian Dix. Good morning. Thank you for being here. You're introducing me with the Tom Petty this morning, uh, Sue. I'm not sure if that's good or bad. Did you want to make a request? We can always use that for next (laughs) time. We can always do something else. Tom Petty's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, okay. We'll we'll make a note of that. Free-falling as opposed to don't, uh, won't back down. I think it's a different, a different <laughs> message. Don't read anything into it. There was, okay. there was no ulterior motive or message. No, no, it's good. It's good. I like the ulterior motive. It's good. Okay. Well, let's uh, talk about, first of all, the announcement yesterday about the shakeup to emergency health services. When did you realize that something had to be done? Uh, in 2017, uh, the main, most significant increases really in the health system in the last few years have been to the ambulance service because a transformation was required. There were terrible relationships with the ambulance paramedics. And in general, we were uh, on a system that was too too dependent on on-call paramedics. So that change has happened over a number of years. Now, uh, that's been 8% a year. And as you know, that's a very significant spending increase. Uh, more than twice it had been in the previous years. So uh, clearly the system needed to be modernized and upgraded, and that's been happening. What we've seen, though, in the last year especially, but in this period coming out of the pandemic, is a very significant increase in calls. Just to compare 2019 to 2021, 28% increase in overdose calls, 24% increase in heart calls, 14% increase in respiratory calls in that period. Those are some of the most significant calls we have because there are purple and red calls. And so uh, we need to continue to make changes and do more to meet that demand because it puts too much pressure on our ambulance paramedics who, as you know, are working extremely hard. Right. And you've brought in some high profile names at the top. Former police chief Jim Chu as well. Tell us CEO Darren Entwistle as a special advisor. How do you why do you think that putting people at the top is going to change what happens at the bottom? Yeah, well, we need to, we, we did both, of course. Um, what we did is provided and addressed some of the issues about uh, employee wellness, which is uh, which were some of the most important things that we did together uh, with the ambulance paramedics union and our work with them. Um, service in, in the interior of BC, meeting service demands in Metro Vancouver. So those were the key initiatives. In addition, I felt we needed to give some clarity and direction at the top. Uh, and ensure that there was one person, a chief ambulance officer, who would be in charge of the service, who would both be the public and the internal face of the organization. And we have, by interim, an outstanding health administrator named Leanne Heppel, who's going to help us with that. In addition, that we needed a chair that was solely devoted to the ambulance service, a board that was solely devoted to the ambulance service. And uh, Jim Shu, who's obviously got a full-time job, but will be playing that role as his contribution really to the community. I'm very appreciative of it. And I think he's going to help us there with his experience. And a new set of eyes, a different set of eyes on the, on the issues as well. So I think that's an addition, but it's certainly not the only addition. It's a pretty comprehensive response. Were you unhappy with the way recent situations had been dealt with all these stories about ambulance wait times and, and people who'd been impacted by that? Did you feel that had been dealt with appropriately at the higher levels? I'm not concerned about the stories. I'm concerned about the wait times. I mean, when you see, as we saw on June 2nd, this had nothing to do with the heat wave, the third highest day of ambulance calls in history. And uh, that's a real challenge for everybody. It was June 2nd, and except for two New Year's Eve, the highest time in history, the highest day of calls in history, it tells us 
okay that that there's significantly more demand for the most serious of calls, which we call purple and red calls, and that um, and that we needed to move and continue to move and increase our efforts to meet that demand because ultimately when people call 911 and need an ambulance, they need an ambulance. And so we have to be ready to move and deliver that. There is, of course, a public confidence question as well, which is important. But the real question is, when I call 911, do I get an ambulance? And that's what yesterday's changes were about. Are you confident that the next time, you know, when there is a next time with a heat situation like we had a couple of weeks ago, that people will get the help that they need and the information will get out there? Well, I, I think we did. I mean, the healthcare system responded with emergency action. What we saw was something we'd never seen before in history. And it's not just about increasing temperatures. This was day after day indoors of very high temperatures. So people were having sustained periods in the high 30s in their apartment. Like mine, my, the temperature of my apartment in the middle of the night was between 30 and 40 degrees, which is really unheard of, right? And so uh, that was a significant situation. And I think there's more we have to do both to address climate change. That's a separate question. But also to uh, prepare and be more resilient. The most similar day that we've had ever was two, in 2009. And it had some things in common with this, but nothing like the heat, the extended period of heat that we saw in this. So uh, that means we're going to have to also learn the lessons from this as well and uh, continue to do better. And uh, and that means all of us as a community, not just the healthcare system, which went on emergency alert everywhere in the province, all the health authorities uh, dealt with the extreme, went on an extreme uh, weather alert. But this was weather unlike that we've ever seen. And we have to understand now that um, this is something we have to prepare for as well. Right, and and perhaps get. I know that internally there were was the alert and that level that went higher. But uh, do you think that was communicated adequately enough to the public? I think that's. I think uh, it was communicated to the public. I think there is a question as to whether we we uh, communicated as clearly as we needed to. Every every health authority went on extreme alert. They announced that publicly, and people knew and felt it. We were living through it, so people weren't unaware of it. But I think the impact of that level of heat over that period, particularly for people, obviously, without air conditioning in their homes, was significant. And mm-hmm. so, um, no, I don't think that uh, that people heard the message as clearly as they, they should have or could have. And so um, that's another thing for us to look at. With respect to the events of that weekend, as you know, mm-hmm. there's a review of every case that someone has lost their lives. Every single case is important. And under our system, every single case gets reviewed by the quorum. Let me also ask you, this morning we were speaking with one of the activists who was handing out safe supply of drugs, they said, in front of the Vancouver Police Station yesterday. We know Vancouver City Councilor Gene Swanson was there doing that as well. Does that concern you when you have activists and groups doing handing out what they say is safe supply? What concerns me is the number of people dying of overdoses in B.C. We're at a public health emergency that's gone on for years. Uh, last month, uh, more than, I think it was 155 people uh, passed away from illicit drug overdoses. So uh, action is required and continues to be required. There's no question COVID-19 made it worse, that such deaths were going down, but they were still too high. So we need to take all of the action, not just one action, not just safe supply. That's important. And you'll hear from Sheila Malcolmson, my colleague, and Dr. Bonnie Henry about that later today. But also... Um, uh, other forms of harm reduction, but also treatment. But these are toxic drugs on our street, 
and uh, it's uh, and we have to make every effort to both warn people, let them know, and allow them to be protected. And as we come out of the pandemic, we had hoped, I think, that some of the circumstances in terms of um, the supply of drugs might change in terms of their toxicity, but those aren't changing. So we have to continue to take action to make people safe. The issue isn't what uh, what activists do or the political debate. The issue is the fact that too many of our, our fellow citizens are dying and we have to take action. Minister Dix, thank you for your time this morning. Hey, thank you. Take care soon. Well, we know that Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart is a big fan. He joined us yesterday to talk about how much he was excited about the idea of Vancouver hosting a few of the 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup games. However, there were some precautions, he said, that the city still needs to take. It all comes down to costs. Uh, FIFA is a really demanding partner, and Montreal stepped back because of local financial pressures. And uh, so we have to make sure that if the province is uh, keen on doing this, that, uh, you know, costs aren't downloaded and we don't have, say, property tax increases to uh, uh, to cover the cost of this, what would be a, an amazing event. But the finances, that's the big issue. It's the reason why Premier John Horgan three years ago, four years ago, right? I think it was back in 2017, turned down this op- opportunity the first time. But this time around, you know, the pandemic, he feels that maybe the tourism industry could use the boost and he's willing to negotiate if FIFA is willing to, you know, rein in some of their demands. So let's talk more about the potential for this. Paul Dolan joins us now, Vancouver Whitecaps TV analyst, former Canadian goalkeeper and goalkeeper coach. Paul, thanks for being here. I'm happy to be aboard. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So how excited were you when you heard that news this week? Oh, very excited. I'm as excited now as I was disappointed when I heard a few years ago that BC had backed out of possibly hosting one of the games here at BC Place. So I know things can change over time, but generally when it comes to big government and FIFA, which is uh, obviously a big agency, uh, I didn't think that we would be in this position. I really didn't. As much as there were conversations about the possibility still exists even past the deadlines, I didn't think this would happen, and I'm really excited about the possibility of it uh, possibly being a World Cup game here in Vancouver. So, it, obviously, there's a lot of concerns about FIFA, right, as an organization there. Do you think there is some willingness to bend on FIFA's part to get this 2026 World Cup done? I do, uh, and I've had conversations, actually, with the FIFA vice president, who's a local boy, you know, uh, Vic Montigliani from Burnaby here. Uh, very reasonable person. It's not down to Vic, you know, whether or not... Uh, they can make, um, uh, you know, concessions for BC to to have it better than, say, other cities across North America, of course. But in my discussions, my understanding is that, of course, you want to be flexible to the point where it works for both parties. There are some things, bottom line, that FIFA has to have. And just like John Horgan will say, there are things from the government's perspective they have to have met as well or, you know, uh, expenses that just can't be met if, if that's what it's going to take on the other side. So I think it will come down to the fact that FIFA wants to have a World Cup game in Vancouver. It's, uh, you know, along with Toronto, obviously, uh, the two preeminent cities in Canada where you'd want to be hosting games for the Canadian portion. And so uh, we've proven the ability to do that with the Women's World Cup here. I think it was tremendous both for FIFA and it was tremendous for the province and for the city as well to have the games here. It was inspirational for the young women. We saw registration numbers increase after that. 
And that's something I think that, uh, you know, aside from finances that maybe aren't mm-hmm. considered as much, is the well-being of young soccer players, young athletes, something that's inspiring uh, for athletes across the country, but here in BC in particular, to have a game here. I think there's a lot of benefits, obviously, on the tourism sector that uh, even John Horgan himself has identified. And uh, I think th- those costs can outweigh, those benefits can outweigh the cost that FIFA have implemented in order to stage a game here. Right. You mentioned uh, the community benefits, and I think that is a big part of this. So you're saying that after that Women's World Cup back in 2015, we did we see a difference in local soccer at those levels of more girls signing up to play? Absolutely. And they were inspired by what they saw locally here, you know, firsthand ability to go into the stadium and see Canada play against England with 50,000 plus there. And uh, we saw that go back as far as 1986 when Canada qualified for the World Cup as well and interest in soccer registrations and people interested in the game as well. And and I think obviously Canada hosting uh, is going to give us that bump as well. But to have it in B.C. I think will even be a bigger lift here locally. So how do you envision this working then? Like how much is too much to give away to get this game here, you know? Yeah, I think the biggest one that has been talked about have been the security costs. I see things about the fields that need to be changed. Of course, it'll be a grass field that they'll have to replace the turf there. But these, to me, are expenses. They're the cost of doing business that aren't so-called blank check that John Horgan at one point had talked about. And again, I think those things can be worked out. When you get from FIFA that you have to have the stadium cordoned off for two months and not used. I think that's there's a pushback there. I think the Whitecaps, for instance, would say, well, we're well, in the yeah. middle of our Major League Soccer season. Uh, where are we going to be playing games? So I think those things can be massaged, though. I don't think that they're hard and fast, although I can understand that coming in to the cutoff, the deadline date, those things did need to be black and white. Uh, but I believe now that there might be a little bit more uh, working room to be able to make these things happen. Yeah, do you think we come from a bit more of a position of strength on this now? They, they kind of need us more this time? <laughs> you know, that's a possibility with Montreal now backing out. And, you know, the, the reason that I think Quebec pulled out was a cost overrun or the possibility of a cost overrun, but they had to do some major stadium renovations at the Big O there. Whereas BC Place is as close to turnkey uh, as it could be, aside from putting the grass in there. And that's not a minor undertaking, but it's not one that I think will push us beyond it. So, yeah, it's hard to know exactly uh, the the biggest cost that will um, maybe be a stumbling block. But I think, again, uh, we're in a bit better position now because FIFA, I'm sure, would like to have games in Vancouver. But at the end of the day, 16 cities will be there for FIFA. And if we don't meet uh, at least some minimum criteria, unfortunately, I think they'll be just as happy to go with the 16 that are very willing to do it. Okay, well, the other, I think, big challenge here, too, is if you're going to have some World Cup games here, geez, our Canadian men's team, they've got, you know, six years to, to make it there. Yeah, and remember, too, that the fact is, by hosting... Normally, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but that means that you are automatically qualified into it. But I feel that this Canadian group of players is strong enough now that they could qualify if need be. And I think they're going to qualify for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar as well. So it's that's the other thing is you've got a team that's on the rise right now, the most exciting Canadian group of players that uh, we've ever had to watch. 
and the likelihood that Canada would actually play in Vancouver as well is probably one of four games that would take place at BC Place if we were to get it. I tell you, Paul, you're just making this sound like win, win, win. I'm trying to sell it hard. <laughs> I hope John's listening. <laughs> well, I think the other thing is people would like it, but when you talk about an organization like FIFA, right, with so many headlines and so many corruption scandals, people become very apprehensive. They do, but uh, it's a different FIFA, and I know that's easy for me to just say, you know, to wash the slate clean of some of the things that we know did go on in previous World Cups and even the one that's uh, approaching in Qatar. You, you can't deny the fact that there was some underhanded stuff that went on to get Qatar the World Cup that shouldn't have happened. But the majority of the people involved in that, in fact, I, I think virtually all the people involved in that are now not involved with FIFA. And, you know, some of the other things that uh, we've seen since the new regime has come in, like the Women's World Cup that we had here, but but furthermore, some of the things that can happen ahead of a 2026 World Cup that maybe people don't consider as much is the fact that there'll be build-up games here where there wouldn't be otherwise. So it's not just the three or four games that would take place in Vancouver. It's games ahead of that, possibly the Confederation Cup, which is a major tournament played the year before the World Cup, conferences and workshops, um, John Horgan talks about the tourism industry being buffeted the most uh, coming out of the, the pandemic here. Um, now, that's you know still a few years away, but it's actually just, uh, when I look at it here, what, what 2021, we're talking five years. That, that goes really quickly. Yeah. So I think these are things that will really help get Vancouver back on the map, as we saw not just with, with the Women's World Cup, but obviously with the Olympics as well in 2010 and what a success that was. All right, we'll see what happens. Paul, thanks for your time. Okay, happy to be on, Timmy. That's Paul Dolan, Whitecaps TV analyst. By the way, Paul will also be the featured guest on the post-match show with Corey Basso this Saturday on AM 730, so make sure you tune in for that. Paul's also a former Canadian goalkeeper and goalkeeper coach, and as you heard, very enthusiastic about the idea of you know Vancouver being on the schedule to host one of those 2026 Men's World Cup Games.